The development of the West is one of the great stories of American history. This excursion in history will be a study of the men who searched out the lands west of the Mississippi River for glory and for fortune. This is the story of the mountain men. The West, beyond the Mississippi River, was a dark continent. That is to say, little of this country was known. Only the Lewis and Clark expedition had shed light on what could be found in this vast wilderness. And their expedition only illuminated what was to be found in the upper Missouri country and the Pacific Northwest. After the Lewis and Clark expedition, rugged men of the American frontier will go into this vast unknown and look for furs. There was a fortune to be made in pelts, and this region of the United States had been, for the most part, untapped. The first group of men to set out up the Missouri River after the Lewis and Clark expedition was a group led by Manuel Lisa. In 1807, Lisa, without halfway trying, returned with boats laden with furs. And with this catch, Lisa became a wealthy man. Once a wealthy man, Lisa organized the Missouri Fur Company. And now, instead of going into the wilderness himself, he hired men to do his bidding. One of the first things Lisa did was to hire a man by the name of John Coulter. Coulter was one of the early pioneers of this area. He had been on the Lewis and Clark expedition and was now hired as a scout by Lisa to explore regions and find places where there were beavers in abundance. After he and his scouts had found these regions, they would report the news back to Lisa and he would send in trappers to trap the region out. It was while in the Blackfoot Indian country that Coulter discovered a natural wonder. The natural wonder is what is known today as Yellowstone National Park. But in the early days, it was known as Coulter's Hell. It was also while in this country that Coulter and one of his friends, John Potts, were captured by the Blackfoot Indians. Potts tried to get away and was instantly killed. Coulter, however, was taken prisoner. It was the custom of the Blackfoot to play cat and mouse with their victims before killing them. Sometimes they would kill their prisoners by making them targets for their arrows. Or they might do as they did in Coulter's case, allow him to make the Indian run. The Indian run is where the Indian would give you about a 300-yard head start and then chase you. If the Indians caught you, they would kill you. If you got away from them, you had won your right to live. From this Indian run comes the saying, run for your life. The tale of Coulter's run has been recorded in Stanley Vestal's book, Mountain Men. According to Vestal's book, once Coulter had been captured, the Indians tore off his clothing. He waited there, helpless and naked as a jaybird, while the Indians decided whether to kill him outright or to let him make the Indian run. When it was decided to let him make the Indian run, one of the chiefs took him out onto the prairie and told him, Run! Once Coulter was turned loose, 
He sprang forward and ran so fast that he even surprised himself at his speed. The Indians with a war hoop took out after him. Before Coulter stretched an open prairie, beyond it six miles away lay the Jefferson Fork of the Missouri River. He would run for that, and for the next three miles he did not look back. Coulter just ran as fast as he could. The plain was thick with prickly pear, and Coulter's feet were bare. Soon the soles of his feet were filled with the spines of cactus, but Coulter did not let that slow him down. When he took a look over his shoulder, he began to take courage. Most of the Indians were far behind him. Only one long-legged fellow was nearer than 100 yards. For the first time, Coulter began to hope that he might escape. The river was only a mile off now. Then suddenly, he heard the thud of the Indians' feet coming up behind him. So Coulter suddenly stopped, turned and surprised the Indian. He grabbed the Indian's lance and killed his pursuer. Gasping with exhaustion, he plunged on toward the cottonwood trees near the river. Then half fainting, he plunged into the water and allowed the currents to sweep him downstream. He had done it. He had made good his escape. He had won his right to live. This was only one of many hazards that the mountain man faced in this wilderness. Besides the Indians, there were also grizzly bears and rattlesnakes, all of which kept the mountain man constantly on the alert. One of the men to come west during this period of time was a man by the name of William Ashley. Ashley had lost all of his money in the financial panic of 1819 and sought now to recuperate his fortune by hiring men to trap furs for him. One of the scouts hired by Ashley to find where the fur-bearing animals lived was Jedediah Strong Smith. Smith will go west and find the furs for Ashley, and in so doing, he will travel the greater part of the western United States. Because of his fabled journeys, historians will call him the Pathfinder of the American West. One of the most significant landmarks he found during his journey west was a place called South Pass. This was a pass through which the pioneers would later travel on their way to Oregon during the 1840s. In fact, it was the only pass through the Rocky Mountains large enough to facilitate the wagons of the pioneers. Smith, then, was the person who broke through the Rocky Mountain Barrier. After Smith reported the news to Ashley of the great find of beaver in the Green River Valley, Ashley dispatched trappers to the area to catch the animals. Rather than wait for the trappers to bring their furs all the way back to St. Louis, Ashley would take a group of merchants and travel west and rendezvous with the trappers in mid-July. There, he and the other merchants would trade their merchandise with the mountain men for the furs that they had caught. The rendezvous became the only tie that the mountain man had with civilization. So, it was looked forward to each year by the mountain man with great anticipation. At the rendezvous, the trappers would ask eagerly for year-old news first. Then, they would watch the merchants display their merchandise. 
The merchants displayed gunpowder, rifles, knives, beaver traps, beads, trinkets, coffee, sugar, blankets, tobacco, and whiskey. At the trading sessions, the mountain men cheerfully surrendered their furs for the needed items of scarce-remembered luxuries. It did not matter that the prices were astronomical. Why quibble over a blanket at $20 each, tobacco at $3 a pound, alcohol at $5 a pint, when the beaver pelts could be had for the taking and were worth from three to six dollars each. Even at these prices, the mountain man used only a portion of his year's catch to buy what he needed. The merchants would secure the rest after they opened the casks of alcohol, which were used as the universal trade item. The rendezvous soon was transformed into a scene of roaring debauchery. Some of the mountain men staged foot races. Others fought and wrestled. Some fought duels, usually with rifles at 20 paces, where one or both of the participants were certain to be killed. Some of the mountain men gambled recklessly until they had squandered away in a few hours their entire year's earnings. However, neither miser or repentant could be found amongst men who risked their lives daily. Eventually, both the alcohol and the mountain man were exhausted. The rendezvous now came to a close, and the mountain man stumbled back into the wilderness to go about his business of trapping furs for the next year. As for the dress of the mountain man, he wore what nature would provide. Usually he had buckskin clothing and moccasins, which looked very colorful. But as romantic as these clothes were, they could best be appreciated at a distance, for they were never removed from the time they were put on until the time they were discarded, except perhaps when their owners laid them across an anthill and let the ants eat the lice off the clothing. The mountain men were superb fighters also, and they fought as did their Indian foes. They took advantage of the brush and rocks as they moved in on their opponents. They could shoot with unerring accuracy, but they usually ended their battle in hand-to-hand -hand combat. If their fighting methods were those of the Indians, so were their eating habits for the mountain man seldom knew from where his next meal would come. Planning was a virtue unknown to him. When caught on an unexpected long desert march, the mountain man would bleed his animals and drink the blood. During the winter months, the mountain man would hole up and live as best he could on what he trapped. But in the spring, when the buffalo herds returned, the mountain man would enjoy a spring feast. A feast fit for a king, a savage king to be sure. About a fire of buffalo chips, which the mountain man preferred to wood because the fire of buffalo manure imparted a peppery flavor to the meat, he would prop row upon row of choice hump ribs. While they sizzled, the mountain man would drink some of the warm blood of the animal. Then he ate the liver, usually raw, and flavored it with the contents of gallbladder. After these delicacies, the trapper was ready for his feast, which had been cooking. 
Not only did he eat the hump ribs, but he also ate the roasted intestines of the animal as well. Nothing went to waste. There were several persons who made their fortunes and reputations in the fur business. Men like John Jacob Astor, Benjamin Bonneville, Joseph Redford Walker, and Jim Bridger. But eventually, the era of the mountain man would come to an end. During the winter and spring of 1836-1837, the fur business staggered under a severe blow. There was an exceptionally cold winter that year. For months, the snow lay seven feet deep in the mountains while the thermometer skidded far below zero. Death by freezing took a frightful toll of the animals that had managed to escape the hunter's trap. The mountain man's hour of glory began slipping into the pages of the past, and soon he would begin to disappear from the American scene because of his own greed, as the mountain man had trapped the fur-bearing animals almost into extinction. This aristocrat of the wilderness, who called no man master, and who had been free to move when and where he wished, would watch his way of life come to an end. What had once been a rich and prosperous fur trade now became a thing of the past. And so the fur trade died out, as did the mountain man. But before he passes into the pages of history, perhaps we should take a look at his contribution to the history of the United States. It is agreed by most that the mountain man blazed the trails west. He carried the news eastward of the opportunities waiting for those who would go west. Over the trails that he had blazed and through the passes that he had discovered were to come the long wagon trains of pioneers who would fill the valleys that once rang with the shouts of drunken trappers with the fertile farms which would transform the West into its greatness.